0: All right, well, uh, after a break last Sunday, this week we're returning to our series on the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, John had a vision of Jesus, and in that vision, Jesus said, I want you to record messages for seven churches, seven real churches in first century Asia Minor. And uh, over the last month, we've been looking at these messages and we've been asking, "What, what do these mean for our church today? And as Keith mentioned today, we are looking at the message to the church in Thyatira. I think that's how you say that. I've, lis- I've listened to a bunch of pastors say it. They all say it different ways. The official pronunciation on YouTube is Thyatira. So, but I doubt anyone, anyone's going to argue with me about it anyway. So um, if you uh, want to follow along, turn to Revelation 2, starting in verse 18. And uh, as you head there. Let's uh, say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning, and we thank you for the chance to look at your word together. And um, we, look, we acknowledge, Lord, sometimes uh, your word can be, can be challenging. Uh, this is a challenging passage, and I just pray that you would open us up to be willing to hear whatever it is that your Holy Spirit wants to teach us uh, through this passage. We give you thanks for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's dive right in. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So, like anyone who is wisely going to offer correction, Jesus begins by saying the good things, right? This is the pattern that he's had in the letters so far. And there's a a lot of good things, a lot of things to commend about the church at Thyatira. Um, Unlike the Ephesians, this church actually has that essential quality of love. They, they get it. They understand that an essential ingredient to being a follower of Christ is really wanting to bless others and, and to bless God. They get that. Uh, they're also a church that's filled with faith. They trust God. And their love and their faith, it's not just talk, right? Their love and their faith are actually backed up by action. Jesus says, I see your service and your perseverance. This is the kind of church that understands that you have to try to help the poor. You have to work against injustice. You have to offer help to people who are in need. You know, I think this is probably the kind of church where people are generous, even when funds are tight. Uh, The kind of church where people will give of their time and energy, even if they really just want to, like, I don't know, sit around at home for a while, you know? They, 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 they're willing to stretch themselves. They, they understand service and perseverance. And they serve and persevere not out of some desperate desire to escape the judgment of God, but because they have love and faith, right? So this sounds like a really good church, really good church. And not only are they doing good things out of good motivation, but they're doing more and more and more, right? This is a church that is on an upswing. This is not a a declining church. This is uh, not a church that needs a revitalization program, right? This is a church that can be an example to others of what it looks when when you're coming alive. But there are some problems here that really need to be addressed. So, continuing in verse 20, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So, the big problem in Thyatira was that the church was tolerating Uh, The influence of this woman, a self-proclaimed prophetess named uh, Jezebel, or that's what Jesus calls her. In all likelihood, this woman was not actually named uh, Jezebel. If you're familiar at all with Israel's history, story of the Old Testament, uh, Jezebel was this wicked woman who uh, married an Israelite king, and then she led Israel astray by encouraging them to worship false gods and encouraging the king of Israel to worship false gods. And what Jesus is saying is that this woman at Thyatira is like Jezebel. She has the same kind of spirit as Jezebel. What Jesus is doing here is kind of the same thing that he did in the letter to the church at Pergamum. You might remember that he talked about uh, people who followed the teaching of Balaam. Well, Balaam wasn't a present-day figure. Balaam was somebody from way back in the Old Testament. But it's the same idea. He's using a historical figure to say these people are like these people from the past, and history is repeating itself in a not so good way, right? Now, before I go any further, there's something I want to clarify, and it's important enough that I made a slide for it. The problem with this woman was the content of her prophecy, not the fact that she was a woman and a prophet, okay? Um, (laughs) Now, I realize some of you might be thinking, Why would you even need to clarify that, right? Um, Others of you who are more aware of the debates that have gone on about gender roles in the church and that sort of thing can probably understand more why I would find it necessary to make this clarification. Um, Whether you're familiar with that discussion at all or not, here's what I want us to recognize. In the Bible, there are multiple positive examples of women having and using the gift of prophecy. Okay, Uh, which, by the way, the Apostle Paul said the gift of prophecy is the gift that we should desire most of all. Uh, And if you're not familiar with what prophecy is, uh, it is defined by Vine's Expository Dictionary as the speaking forth of the mind and counsel of God. It's knowing the right thing to say at the right time, words from God, okay? And again, the Bible has positive examples of women doing this. Uh, this woman in Thyatira, she is a false prophet, but it is not because she is a woman. Okay. Um, just to back that up, I'd like to give a few positive examples of women serving as prophets in the Bible. Uh, the Gospel of Luke talks about the prophetess Anna, uh, who recognized the infant Jesus as the Messiah. And it says that she went out after realizing that he had arrived, and she shared the news of his arrival, quote, with all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem, which I presume in- included both men and women, right? Because I'm sure some men were looking forward to the redemption of, is- of Israel, right? So <laughs> Anna was going out and prophesying to both men and women. Another example is Philip the Evangelist's four daughters in Acts 21.9. They're all described as having the gift of prophecy. And then if we looked in, look in the Old Testament, we have the example of Miriam, who's a prophetess, and some of her words are recorded in the book of Exodus. Uh, there's also Deborah in the book of Judges. And it's also worth mentioning that 1 Corinthians 11 uh, gives instructions, the Apostle Paul gives instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 to both men and women on what is appropriate to do when they are prophesying. So there's an assumption in Paul's writing there that men and women are both going to have the gift of prophecy and presumably they're going to prophesy in the company of one another, right, to each other. So, all that to say, the problem with this woman in Thyatira wasn't that she was a woman prophet, it was the content of what she was saying. And what she was saying was leading people into the same two sins that were a problem in Pergamum, which we talked about two weeks ago, Uh, sexual immorality, and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, as we talked about two weeks ago, I really believe that both of these sins are ongoing temptations in every generation of the church. Um, Sexual immorality, I think, is an obvious temptation, for us today. But you might be wondering, well, food sacrificed to idols, you know, that's, I don't really, I'm not tempted to do that, I don't even know what that is, right? Well, this is still a temptation today, it's just it's taken a different form. Uh, and that temptation is what you might call the temptation to religious pluralism. Is that, when I say that, do, do you, have you guys familiar with that all, religious pluralism? So pluralism is many, right? So religious pluralism is the kind of the idea that, well, all religions are really the same. They all lead to the same thing. Um, the reason that eating meat sacrificed to idols was wrong, it wasn't because there was something wrong with the food itself, but it was because when you participated in eating that food, you were communicating to everybody, I worship this false god. Uh, when you would eat this food, you would probably be at a feast, a public feast, and everyone around you could see what you were doing, and they could see you eating it, and if Christians were eating this food, what they were communicating to everyone around them is, I worship many gods. Many gods are valid. Religious pluralism. Okay. And there is a strong temptation for us today to say similar things, to say, you know, all roads lead to God. It's all really the same thing. Jesus is one God among many. But Jesus doesn't want his church to be ambiguous about proclaiming that he and he alone is the true king of the universe. He and he alone. Now, if you've been here over the past month, maybe even longer, you may have noticed I keep emphasizing that idea, which is because I think that's what the text is saying to us over and over again this idea that Jesus is the true king is essential to our faith. It is is part of the, the bedrock of it. The Bible says that all things were made through Jesus, for Jesus, and by Jesus. All of this. He is the one through whom, for whom, and by whom all things were made. And that's actually really great news, that Jesus is the true king of the universe, because what we know about Jesus is that he is a good and loving king, right? He, he is a king who sacrifices his earthly life for the good of his kingdom, right? You're never going to find a king who is more sacrificial and generous and loving and good than Jesus. And not only does he want us to think of him as our, our king, but he wants us to think of him as our father, right? Our heavenly father. And even as our friend. But we can't forget he does also want us to recognize him as our king. And that means that we owe him our allegiance. Right? It it means that if since Jesus is the true King of the universe, we should be willing to take every aspect of our lives and say, Lord, I offer this up to you. This is really yours, right? Not my will, but yours. We should be willing to do that with our careers. Right? With, our, with our hopes and our dreams, with our, our sexuality, with our money, to say, Lord, this is ultimately yours. right? Not, your, not, not my will, but yours. And in the church of Thyatira, this Jezebel had gained a significant following, and she was not helping people to recognize Jesus as the true king. And she was not helping people uh, to surrender every aspect of their lives to him, Instead, she was encouraging the opposite. Now, I want us to notice, Okay, the problem in the church at Thyatira wasn't simply that this woman existed and that she had a following. That wasn't the only problem. The problem is that she and her followers were tolerated. Jesus says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, and what that means is that Jezebel and her followers, they weren't just some fringe cult doing their thing on the other side of town, right? They were part of the church at Thyatira, and no one was really doing anything about it. Nobody was challenging this woman or trying to limit her authority, right? She was just tolerated. Nobody confronted. Nobody dealt with it. Now, I'd like to talk a little about this word tolerate. In the culture that we are in today, tolerance is kind of the supreme virtue. Um, You know, tolerance, good tolerance, right? And listen, tolerance is definitely, to an extent, a virtue. Part of being a mature adult is being able to be gracious and respectful to people who disagree with you, even people who disagree about really important things like religion and politics and that sort of thing. We all need to learn tolerance. That's part of being mature, and it's also part of being a good witness for Jesus. If you can't interact with people who think differently than you in a respectful and loving way, that's a real problem. Okay, But... Tolerance does have to have some limits. And I think that we intuitively all understand that, if we really think about it. I mean, you know, over the last couple decades, it's come out that the Roman Catholic Church tolerated many priests who were abusive to children, right? Instead of removing them from the priesthood, they just kind of shuffled them from one parish to another, They tolerated them, and I'm sure we can all agree in that situation, intolerance would have been much more virtuous, right? So tolerance can be a virtue, but taken to the extreme, it can be dangerous because it can enable evil. And that was what was happening in Thyatira. Tolerance was enabling a false prophet to have a dangerous amount of influence, and that was really harming the witness of the church, and it was harming people spiritually. So the way I would summarize this is Jesus always wants us to be loving. He always wants us to be respectful and gracious, but he doesn't always, always want us to be tolerant, right? There are some things that Some attitudes, some behaviors, some thinking that we should be intolerant of. Sometimes real love does require intolerance. And not a nasty, ungracious intolerance, but it does require an intolerance. Now, what does this all mean for a church like ours today? Well, let me start by saying this, okay? This is very important for me to lead with this. Regardless of what you believe regardless of what your lifestyle might look like, you are welcome here in this church. Uh, You are welcome to be here on Sunday morning. You are welcome to come to the events that are held, so long as you are not being uh, dangerous or violent or disruptive. You are welcome here. And you know what? We won't just tolerate you being here. We'll be very happy (laughs) that you're here. Uh, We'll be glad uh, because we believe that God loves you. You know, even if you're not sure whether God exists, we believe that God loves you. And we want you to know God and experience God. And our prayer is that when you come here, you will experience him. And you will come to know him. But you know what? Even if that doesn't happen right away, even if you're coming for 10 years and you're still not sure what you believe, we still want you here. We do. We will tolerate your uncertainty and your doubt. That's okay. We can do that. But, let's say you want to be a member of the church and you want to help vote on things to set the direction of where the church is going. Let's say you want to lead a Bible study or you want to play some significant leadership role, have some kind of authority. Well, if you're going to do that, we want you to be a follower of Jesus. Um, You're going to have to agree with our mission and our vision and our statement of faith. You're going to have to be on board with the teaching of the apostles, and you're going to have to see the Bible as authoritative. Now, we can recognize the Bible can be hard to interpret, and we discuss and debate over how to understand the difficult stuff, but you're going to have to see the Bible as authoritative if you want to have those kind of roles here. And if that sounds intolerant, well, maybe it is, but that's okay, right? (laughs) Because Jesus doesn't want us to just tolerate anything, especially when it comes to what is taught and encouraged in the church. Now, of course, one of the tough questions that churches have to deal with is, what do our members all have to agree on? What is it okay for them to disagree on? In other words, what differences can we tolerate and what differences are not tolerable? What differences are substantial enough that we need to say, well, I guess membership isn't really for you here or leadership isn't really something for you here. An example of a difference that wouldn't really be tolerable is if someone said, well, I want to be a member, but I just don't believe that Jesus is Lord. I don't believe that Jesus is God. I think he's a great moral teacher, and I, I try to follow his example, but I don't, I don't really believe that, that stuff about him being God or the supreme authority of the universe. That would be a difference of opinion that would not be tolerable for a member or a leader in the church. Now, you can certainly be an attender. You can be here. We're happy to have you here. We want you to be here. But you can't, you can't be a member or a leader. Now, historically, I think that many churches have made the mistake of not being tolerant enough, Uh, because a lot of churches have demanded that their members all believe the same stuff about all kinds of things that there have been debates over for years in the church. Like, um, there are churches that demand that all their members believe exactly the same thing about end times theology and, you know, all that stuff which if we get into the other parts of Revelation, you're going to see that's tough, tough stuff to deal with, right? Churches that demand that everyone agrees on how old the earth is or you know, whether the five points of Calvinism are all correct, and if you don't know what those are, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> uh, churches that uh, you know, argue or everyone needs to be on the same page about whether it's okay to drink you know, and speaking in tongues and, and, and all kinds of stuff. And as far as I can tell, in my experience, it is more common in churches for tolerable differences to be considered intolerable than for intolerable differences to be considered tolerable. I could be wrong about that, but based on my own study of church history, my own observation, especially of churches in America, this is the impression that that I have. So... Let's talk a little bit more about intolerable, and tolerable differences. I'm going to call intolerable differences hills you're willing to die on. Okay? These are things that are so important that if somebody disagrees, you feel like, I need to take my stand. I need to confront. I can't just let this go, right? A hill you're willing to die on. And here's what I would say. If you are really following Jesus, there are going to be some hills that you are willing to die on. There definitely will be. Uh, Certainly, Jesus wanted these churches to have some hills that they would die on, right? Like, don't worship the emperor. That was a big one. That was a hill worth dying on. But at the same time, if we are really following Jesus, there's also going to be a lot of hills that we're not willing to die on. And the reason for that is because we are going to value unity. And we're going to recognize that to a certain extent, in order to have unity, you do have to put up with some differences of opinion in non-essential matters. Unity is extraordinarily important uh, to Jesus. Before Jesus went to the cross, one of the last things that he prayed was for unity in the church. Uh, He says in John 17, My prayer is not for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So, us, right? That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Wow, that's a high standard of unity, right? Jesus really wants his church to be unified. But the only way that's ever going to happen is if we're able to recognize not all hills are worth dying on, a lot of hills. Are not worth dying on. Some differences of opinion are tolerable. A lot of differences are opinion of opinion are, are tolerable. And if we care about unity, we do need to be very wise and selective about which hills are worth dying on. I think a big part of growing in our faith and reaching, reaching Christian maturity is being able to discern this is a hill worth dying on and this is not a hill worth dying on. And uh, I think we need to recognize that throughout the history of the church, a lot of people have died on hills they didn't need to die on. I found a satire article on a uh, satire news site called Lark, Lark News that pokes fun at how quick Christians are to divide. Now, this is again, this is not real, but it's so close to reality that it might as well be. Um, so, okay, I'll read this. Greeley, Colorado. A little Jewish praise word caused a lot of controversy as a Colorado church, divided over the proper spelling of hallelujah, split up and reformed as separate congregations. The problem arose when the board of elders at Full Gospel Temple budgeted money for a praise banner to hang from the sanctuary ceiling bearing the word hallelujah or alleluia one faction insisted the word be spelled the first way while the other wouldn't budge from the second way petitions were drawn up rallies held and late night threats received by both sides one man an alleluia supporter was nearly clobbered by a rock that came through his window the rock bore a note that simply said hallelujah Both sides were adamant that since they had grown up with a particular spelling, theirs was correct. It makes a tremendous difference when you open your eyes and see it there on the banner spelled wrong, said a hallelujah supporter. It's so jarring to see it without the H at the beginning. Nobody spells it that way anymore. I was so sick about it I couldn't sleep, said Evelyn Haney, 57, an equally ardent hallelujah supporter who carried a sign during a recent day of picketing. To think some people spell this wonderful word with a J in it. It's not something where I question their salvation, but at times you have to wonder. <laughs> the two churches now meet in separate school auditoriums, and each has fashioned a banner to suit its own preference. Worship, says one parishioner, is much better now. So there's a reason that that's satire, right? Right because there's a grain of truth in it. Now, I think here at St. Paul's, we do a really good job of not dying on those kinds of hills. In my experience, that's been the case here. And that is a really good thing, and I thank God for that. And I thank all of you for that, because I can't do that. (laughs) I can't make that happen on my own. So I thank God that this is a church where people tend to value unity more than agreeing on every subject. But, that said, this message to Thyatira should remind us there is such a thing as being too tolerant. Right? There are things that really matter. There are teachings that are dangerous. And this letter reminds us that, specifically, we do need to be on guard against teaching that leads us to sexual immorality and to religious pluralism. Which, as I pointed out last week, are, I think, especially strong temptations in the culture that we're in today. It's, it's important for us to be reminded of how important these things are to God. Uh, and their importance becomes even clearer when we read a little further in the passage. So let's continue in verse 21. This is tough stuff. I'm just going to acknowledge it's hard, but I, I don't, I don't want to skip it. Um, Jesus is saying that judgment is going to come upon this woman and her followers. Uh, Just to clarify a few things, the bed of suffering there, that's probably referring to a sick bed, like when somebody falls ill and then they're bedridden because they're sick. Um, So he's saying this physical illness is going to come upon this woman. When he says those who commit adultery with her, he doesn't mean literally those who are committing adultery with this woman. Uh, that phrase, committing adultery, means those who participate in this idol worship with her, okay? Because um, idol worship is always recognized throughout the Bible as a form of spiritual adultery. It's cheating on, cheating on the true God, right? And uh, also, the children who are struck dead. Most commentators that I read don't think these are literally her kids, but children is a way of referring to those who were following her, her disciples, you know, who were completely sold out to her teaching, and we're refusing to repent uh, from it. Now, I know, still, even with those explanations, right, this does sound uh, very, very harsh, but we need to keep in mind, uh, this woman and her followers, they were given an opportunity to change, right? God has, Jesus has given them time to repent, but he knows that at this point, repentance isn't, it's not gonna happen. The Bible tells us that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. No pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. But sometimes, God knows that destruction is the best bad option. That's the way I would put it. You might remember back when we uh, talked about uh, Abraham's story in Genesis and looked at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That was one of the points there. That, you know, God is willing to spare the city for one righteous person. (laughs) But there does come a point where destruction is the best, the best bad option, when repentance will not happen. Sometimes God allows the consequences of our bad choices to just come upon us full force. I think a lot of the time he's gracious and he actually keeps it from happening, right? But sometimes he withdraws and boom, it happens. And uh, that was what Jesus was saying was going to happen to this Jezebel and her followers. And even though that was really bad news for this Jezebel and her followers, it was also helpful to the, to that, to the first century church, right? It was helpful because it served as a sign that this kind of teaching is dangerous. It's not, it's not good. The church can't go this way and survive. Let's keep reading in verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Satan's so-called deep secrets, what's that about? Well, we can see here that part of this Jezebel's false teaching was to claim that she had access to these deep secrets that nobody else had. And Jesus mocks that by calling these deep secrets Satan's deep secrets. She was probably calling them gods, right? But Jesus is turning that around here. And Jesus basically says, don't worry about secret knowledge. Just focus on holding on to the truth that I've already revealed to you. Until I return. I don't know about you, but in my journey of faith, I have occasionally encountered people who claim to have some secret special knowledge from God that that nobody else has, and they think that I need to get in on that secret special knowledge. And if you ever encounter someone like that, I just encourage you to be careful, okay? Because even if they're right and they do have some secret special knowledge from God that most people don't have or nobody else has, that's not what you need to focus on, okay? Because as Jesus says here, the thing that he really wants his church to focus on is the revelation he's already given, right? The revelation of himself, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what he wants us to hold on to until he comes again. That's what he wants us to focus on. The secrets of heaven that you and I really need to know, they haven't been delivered to just one person, you know, in some remote village somewhere, <laughs> They have been revealed openly through Jesus Christ. Now, to finish up here, uh, you might remember that in the last letter we looked at, it concluded with two really fascinating promises for those who remain faithful to Christ. Do you remember that? There was the promise of the hidden manna and the promise of receiving a white stone with a new name written on it. And I remember... You know, We talked about how interesting those were and what those were all about. This letter also concludes with some really intriguing promises, promises that you might not expect. Uh, so let's look at this. This is continuing in verse 26. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, okay, I'm almost done here, so don't let me lose you here. This is really remarkable. This is really cool, okay? Jesus says that if we remain faithful, if we remain committed to him, he will will give us authority to rule over the nations. Uh, he uses a quote here that's from one of the psalms, Psalm 2. This, he will um, rule them with an iron scepter, dash them to pieces like pottery. And, and that particular psalm was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. So Jesus recognizes this psalm is about him, right? But what's so crazy is he takes this psalm that's about him, and then he goes, this is going to be about you, too. What? <laughs> this is going to be about you, He says, this is what you are going to become. This really should help us to realize, you know, our God, he is the supreme king, he is the ruler, but you know what? He's not the power-hungry kind of earthly king that many of us are familiar with, right? This is the kind of God who shares authority, This is a God who desires to spread his authority among his people. This is the kind of king who's really good at delegating and who wants to delegate and wants to delegate to us, to you and to me. Jesus also says that he will give those who overcome the morning star. And um, I'll explain this really fast. The morning star is a reference to Venus. Now, why would Jesus be giving us Venus? It's kind of weird, right? Well, we have to understand that in the culture that Jesus was writing to, the Roman world, they believed that their fate was controlled by the stars. So what Jesus is saying is, I will give you authority over that which you think has authority over you. I will give authority to you over the stars that you think control your life. right? So, God is promising those of us who are faithful that we will have authority over the nations and authority over creation in his coming kingdom. And what's crazy is none of us really knows or understands exactly what that's going to look like or exactly what it means. There's hints of it in scripture, but we can't fully grasp what that is all about. But I hope that you find it inspiring. I hope you hear this hint of this thing that's promised, this authority, and go, ooh, That's exciting. You know, this this world that's to come that the Bible promises to us, it's not some world where we just sit around playing harps on clouds. You know, everybody thinks of heaven and they think, oh, it sounds so boring, right? That's because our imaginations are so poor when it comes to thinking about heaven. And and, and the Bible gives us something very different, right? It tells us that in the world to come, we're going to play a part in managing God's creation, You know, in the world to come, we are in some sense going to be kings and queens all serving the ultimate king. In the world to come, we are going to have uh, stepped fully into the calling that is our true destiny. You know, I think about how in this life, we're all trying to find our calling, right? We're trying to discover, what are we good at? And we all have varying degrees of success in figuring out what our calling is. But even if we think we really nail it, we feel like, man, I got it. You know, this is what I'm supposed to do. Whatever we found is really just a shadow of the ultimate calling that we're going to experience ruling in God's kingdom, having authority over the morning star. But if we're going to handle all that authority well... We need to start by recognizing the true king now. If we're going to have that authority at all, we have to recognize the true king now. And he will help us to know when it's time to be tolerant and when it's time to be gracefully intolerant. He will help us to know when we need to confront and when we need to let things go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help all of us to be captured by a vision of your future kingdom that inspires us and motivates us, Lord. Help us to realize the good things that you want to give us, the authority and power that you want us to hold someday. And Lord, I pray that now we would would begin to prepare for that kind of authority by surrendering our lives to you, Lord, recognizing you as the true king of the universe. Lord, help us to give you authority over every aspect of our lives and give us wisdom to know uh, when to die on the hill and when to let it go. And I pray, Lord, that you would unite us together in the bonds of fellowship in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.